Hello and welcome to the Cycling Science Podcast. My name is Professor Richard Davison and I'm your host. Apologies, it's been a little while since we've uh, published a, a new episode, um, but uh, hot on the heels of the uh, Olympic um, time trial, um, today I have an interview with Chris Fennell. And in the interview, we talk about Chris's recent paper, um, which looks at the effect of aerodynamic time trial position on gross efficiency and self-paced time trial um, performance. So I think it's highly relevant to say after the Olympic um, time trial uh, has just taken place this week. And um, I think you would see there um, the importance of certainly aerodynamic uh, position um, across the even that elite uh, field. But in our discussion with, uh, in my discussion with Chris, um, we talk about the implications of um, adopting a very um, aero position and how that can have both obviously positive and negative effects on both your ability to produce power um, but um, Chris was also interested in how that might affect uh, gross efficiency. So I hope you enjoy um, this uh, interview um, with uh, Chris. Okay, um, today I'd like to uh, welcome uh, Chris Fennell. Chris is currently at the University of uh, Kent and uh, is a very keen cyclist and uh, has studied at the University of Kent. And actually the paper we're going to talk about today came from his undergraduate uh, dissertation. So the paper we're talking about today is the effect of the aerodynamic time trial position on gross efficiency and self-paced time trial uh, performance and it's published in the Journal of uh, Science and Cycling. So it was published just at the end of last year. So welcome Chris and uh, thank you very much for agreeing to come on to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So um, for our listeners, um, do you want to just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, maybe we could start and ask, you know, so um, what's your sort of cycling background? How long have you been a cyclist and, and what do you typically get up to? Yes, yeah, so I suppose I've been cycling a reasonable amount of time. I got my first road bike back in 2011, so that's sort of when all my cycling things kicked off. So I was 15 then, so good 10 years now. Um, dabbled in road racing, time trialing in the early years and then just settled into time trials really, so... That's what I've been doing sort of competitively on the domestic scene for the last few years. Um, currently riding for a, a local team down in Kent, the team Independent Peddlers and amateur time trial team, but been reasonably successful with the women's side of things. So, yeah, and then obviously alongside that, as you mentioned, I've been studying at Kent Sports Science undergraduate and into Masters. And then we're going on to my PhD in September. So that's pretty much my background. <laughs> Fantastic. That's great. Um, so, you know, obviously, um, yeah, generally for um, undergraduate sort of dissertations, then there's, you know, there can be an element of uh, student choice or uh, supervisor um, sort of suggested. So for this particular piece of work, was this something that you fancied or was it suggested by your supervisor or a better combination of both? I suppose it was a combination of both, but it really was being a time trialist at the time it was more my own interest in the air and you know if you're going to do a dissertation in sports science why not do it on something you're you're interested in so it sort of came from there my I suppose non-scientific reason for it was just purely to look at time trial performance is obviously of interest to me then James Hopker my supervisor also studied gross efficiency quite a lot and published quite a few papers on the area so, so yeah, it was a bit of both combination. Um, yeah. 
And of course, it's, you know, it's quite a topical area, isn't it? You know, and, you know, we were having a little chat before we uh, started the recording here, you know, sort of reminiscing about each other's uh, sort of um, competitive uh, sort of um, exploits. I, you know, certainly, you know, okay, I, you know, I haven't raced competitively for quite a long time, but it's one of the things I've seen, obviously, is, uh, you know, the huge impact of, of aerodynamics. And so, you know, riders, time trialists going much quicker. Um, and of course, you know, in the, nowadays, nearly all time trialists are also obviously uh, using power meters to both monitor and record uh, performance. So, you know, and I look at some of the powers that people are doing and I'm thinking, they haven't changed that much, you know, so it's not as if this current crop of um, uh, cyclists are, are physiologically or are trained better and they're, they're producing hugely more power, but they're certainly going a lot quicker. So obviously aerodynamics is playing a big part and this is really, I suppose, what underpins your um, sort of study here is the, you know, the impact of um, uh, trying to achieve a more aerodynamic position. No, no, absolutely. You're right. So it's, look at the change in equipment and that's a huge part of improvements in performance times. But also how you obviously sit on the bike, a better understanding of more aero positions and how we test for those positions. So I'm not actually an aerodynamicist, so my understanding in this area is quite limited, but obviously just from experience of obviously trial and error my own time trialing, changing my position on the bike, how does that affect my power? And obviously looking at how that impacts the actual times on local courses. So yeah, aerodynamics is obviously, as you say, power. People's physiology hasn't changed much. Maybe approach to training. People might better understand of training principles. But when you actually look at times in comparison to actual improvements in physiological performance, it's definitely all huge percentage of that improvement is to do with aerodynamics. Okay, so with that in mind, maybe you might just uh, sort of, um, for our listeners, just have a little description of, you know, um, you know what you set out to measure in this study, what, what were your sort of aims, um, and what sort of uh, different uh, tests did you carry out? Yep, absolutely. So I suppose going back to sort of the introduction, what actually informed the study, so there's a few previous studies with the Fintzman et al. 2015, which obviously referenced quite a lot in this paper where they looked at time trial position on gross efficiency, um, but they didn't actually look at the effects of performing a time trial. Can, on... just, can I just stop you a little second, Chris, because I always want to sort of, again, we, we and our listeners are come from a, a variety of different backgrounds, so gross efficiency. Um, now, just you know, for clarity for our listeners, what is gross efficiency? Okay, so it's the definition, I suppose, is the ratio of work generated to the total energy cost. So you're more efficient you are, the less energy it takes to produce a certain power output. Yeah, so basically, um, so obviously people are, are very um, aware of power output because it's measured a lot. Um, so energy expenditure, now we would normally just equate that to um, oxygen consumption, yeah? yeah? So it's really looking at, isn't it, the, the ratio of oxygen consumption to the power that you produce. Absolutely, so yeah. obviously the more power you produce um, for the same amount of oxygen, the more efficient you are. Yeah. So in cycling, because you know, obviously there is quite a range across different sports in terms of metabolic efficiency. So typically in cycling what what are we talking about so we're looking perhaps 18 to 24 percent depending on how well trained you are and your training history so how long you've been training for um so it can vary quite a lot if we the efficiency of our cyclists in the current study we're looking about 22 percent that's in there before they perform the time trial so we'll come on to how it changes later on so yeah so a reasonably well trained cyclist of course greater your gross efficiency less energy you expend for that power output or the more power output you can produce yes that's right and of course you know i did say you know it's a ratio of oxygen consumption but of course we have to remember is when you're consuming oxygen it's like the the 
part of the fuel for the combustion of, of stored fuel and, and any endogenous fuel that you might, uh, sorry, exogenous that you might consume as well uh, while you're cycling. So that's really important in terms of total amount of energy throughout any specific yeah. um, effort. Um, and I think that's obviously uh, important when we're looking sort of at performance. Yeah. Okay, so that just gives us a little bit more of a upfront of that's what we're you know uh, the, the higher the efficiency is clearly going to be better in terms of performance so uh sorry i interrupted you but i thought it was important to try and get the the definition in at the beginning to sort of help our um our listeners so back to your sort of introduction yeah, so that's what really informed us today. so you've had studies that have looked at the effect of time trial positions on efficiency and then you've had studies that looks at the effect of time performing time trials on the the change in efficiency so my rationale is basically let's combine the two let's look at how does different time trial positions so in this case changing torso angle affect the change in efficiency across the time trial so i suppose that leads to two sort of aspects of that we're looking how how does the time trial position affect time trial performance also how does that also affect efficiency and combining the two which sort of leads us into the methods i suppose and, yeah. okay so uh your methods then you had a, a reasonable group of cyclists for a start i think that uh, is important and i think you know i i think it's something that's sometimes missed by because you know, you know, research papers are easily accessible these days, and yeah. we get lots of uh, our listeners who who, who go away and read pa uh, research papers, or even some journalists get the hold of research papers. And I think it's really important to remember that there can be quite a bit of a difference between um, a group of students that get tested within the lab as part of a dissertation versus a, a group of good quality cyclists. So I think you probably say looking at your group first of all, you're a good group of cyclists, which is absolutely yeah. So you look at the, I suppose our usual measure in these sorts of papers of performance, when you look at VO2 max, everyone likes that measure, don't they? So we're looking at about 69 mils per kilo a minute when you're looking at that, that number. It's a reasonably well-trained, as we say, um, efficiency of about 22% pre-time trial. So yeah, well-trained cyclists. I suppose the only limitation is we only managed to get 12. So they're well-trained, but sample size is probably not as large as I would have liked it to have been. But obviously limitations of undergraduate research and times didn't allow us to obviously collect more data, but we still managed to get some good data from it. So let's run through the different tests that these cyclists underwent. Yep, so four visit study, visit one being our introduction to the lab, VO2 max test, to incremental exercise test to determine oxygen uptake and also power up VO2 max, which is important for our second three visits when we're determining efficiency. Um, so then visits two to three, four, were our time trials. So in visit one, we looked at the participants preferred riding position. So we could replicate that onto our adjustable time trial bike. Uh, so this is set up in, you know, your usual time trial position, arms out in front on the tri bars, um, standardized sort of shoulder width and made sure their saddle height was the same. So obviously making sure everything's controlled as much as possible. Did this come from their own bikes or was this just a, a, a sort of a feel, you know, how they f felt was best? Yes, this came initially, so we took their set up, set up from their own bike and then adjusted it accordingly to achieve the three positions. Um, so we went for a zero degree torso angle, a 12 degree and a 24 degree, while holding a time trial position, arms outstretched in front. Because a lot of previous research has looked at your usual standing riding positions or on the hoods, on the drops, and sort of sitting really upright. Whereas there's been a limited amount that have looked specifically at holding that more aggressive time trial position and, and again just for our listeners you know uh 
so this is uh, you know measured. Um, uh, I, I could use the anatomical terms, but let's just be simple here. Basically, your hip joint to your shoulder joint, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so zero is quite aggressive. It is. So I think I'm putting it about two people weren't able to achieve that position. So I suppose if you're looking at well-known riders, I suppose Jonathan Castrillejo, you know, you watch him, he's in Team Ineos, he has an extreme. If you look at that, it's probably around zero, give or take a few degrees. And then 24, if you look at it, it's sort of a more upright, so similar to riding on the hoods, that's sort of usual. That's what 24 degrees would look like. So two extremes, um, obviously, just go back, obviously, you know, that extreme, you know, and, and we'll come to some of the consequences of, of the extreme position, but, um, and two two of your riders, um, sorry, three of your riders have made in papers uh, weren't able to achieve the zero um, position, zero degrees uh, torso angle. And what you know so for somebody who's not what what are the reasons what are the factors that determine the ability to reach that um in this case it wasn't flexibility it was more just body body size and right. leg length it's sort of still limited by the restrictions of the the ergometer we were using so okay simply yeah more the ergometer than the actual individuals because of their heights um but still achieving quite extreme positions and close to zero degrees yeah yeah and the idea being lower torso angle obviously reducing the frontal area obviously very oversimplified we're not obviously can't look at we didn't measure frontal area or any other the coefficient of drag but you know a lot of research saying you reduce frontal area you're would be more aero so very oversimplified but restrictions again of what we had available in the time it's sort of the easiest way to go about things was just reduce torso angle okay so we get people set up in these different positions and they do a time trial which is which duration it was 20 minutes so we settled on 20 minutes because previous studies have shown that duration affects efficiency so depending on the length you'd have different changes in efficiency so to ensure we're looking at changes due to the time trial position we set it at a fixed duration for everyone because different abilities someone could be 30 minutes some could be 25 minutes for the, a 10 mile so 20 minutes sort of controls for that and obviously that's bookended by two two efficiency tests and these act up as a warm-up and cool down as well so um, if anyone's got the paper in front of maybe figure two um, so they start at 100 watts then we increase the power output to 45 and then 55% of power up VO2 max. So sub-maximum intensity, because to measure efficiency, you need to be in a steady state of VO2. So you can't have so it's any anaerobic contribution to the energy. So steady state of VO2 and maintaining an RER, respiratory exchange ratio below one. Um, so that's the reason for those power outputs and it allowed us to calculate efficiency before the time trial and then we did exactly the same afterwards. Now I, I note from your methods is you actually had uh, two separate post time trial um, yes. assessments of, of gross efficiency. Uh, do you want to just take us through the rationale for that? So that was just more of a reliability to just make sure that efficiency was so how do I explain it properly <laughs> just uh, uh, yeah, it was just the reliability check to ensure that efficiency of those two time points was yeah pretty much the same so was it because uh, one of the when I was sort of reading your paper initially um you know I thought oh right I, I hadn't considered this idea of the two post ones but then it made sense to me uh, and it, it was a question I wanted to pose to you I thought, okay, maybe not having tried this uh, in the lab myself, uh, maybe if that first bout, because it, was, it wasn't, it was a three minute um, block of, of yeah. work at 55%, the same, the same intensity. 
um, I thought maybe maybe the one which is closest to the end of the time trial, there was still a recovery phase and you weren't satisfied that actually that was steady state. There was still, you know, a recovery element in there and therefore, you know, it was prudent to have a, a second bout of three minutes so that you could be absolutely sure for every rider because, you know, again, not having done this and I don't, I'm not aware of any research that, you know, I suspect there would be um, individual differences at the rate of recovery post a 20 minute effort. You know, some people might come back down to, you know, baseline and be able to do 55% and be quite steady within a three minute period and others might not be. So that was, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. That was one of the reasons as well to ensure we did get a post gene gross efficiency measurement. Because of course, recovery, as you say, times are different. We did have a, a period of complete rest, yeah. more or less after the time trial to bring, accelerate that recovery. Yeah. Um, but yeah, two measurements just to be sure we did get. A, and a was, did you have to, disc, was everybody, if you like, the first three minutes, was it, was it counted on the first three minutes? Or the second, did, was there actually some people that needed more time to, to reach what you would call an acceptable uh, assessment of gross efficiency luckily in everyone across all the trials reached a steady state by the first measurement so we could include all the data yeah. there's no no participants missing in those those data okay good okay so so we have our, our three 20 minute trials randomized order of um your three um your uh, uh angles of uh, torso, um, which were um, 0, 12 degrees and 24 degrees. Um, and so obviously from that, you would have had measures of gross efficiency pre and post. Um, and then you would have had the performance uh, within uh, each of those three uh, torso angles. So. Um, and I think that was, if I remember correctly, that's the main key outcome measures um, from, from your study. So what, what did you find then? So if we start with the actual time trial performance, because this sort of informs what happens with the gross efficiency measures. So as would be expected when we look at a zero degree torso angle with the most extreme position, you know, that affects power output, obviously. Quite, quite important to how fast you go over a time trial. So if, it's not actually in the paper, but we can see there is a significant reduction in power output at that lowest torso angle. Mean figure is 278 watts. And if we compare that to the 24 degree, it's the most relaxed position, that was 294 watts. So a 16 watt difference between the zero and 24 degree. For that 20 minute minute effort so yeah it's a meaningful even significant and meaningful in real world um then if you look at the blood lactate same the trials no differences um rpe was slightly higher at the lower torso angle which would expect with comforts of well, that position is probably not as nice to ride in as a 24 degree um yeah, but we can see there's definitely an effect on physiological functioning at a low torso angle. Okay, so um, and obviously, I, I'm just looking at, at, at one of your figures here. Um, I think it's figure A, uh, maybe the first one. It's the one that's got it because you, you you kind of have it across. Um, you've measured. Uh, I'm just looking initially at power output, which is four time points across your. Um, or four bends of five minute blocks um, across your, your time trial. It looks to me like um, the difference between 24 and 12 is, is a relatively small. There is, there is a difference. I don't know if it's is that significant, the difference between 0 and 12. It's 10 watts if you look at the whole 20 minute effort, that mean. Okay. So still a meaningful difference in power output. Yeah. Not significant when you do the statistics, but I'd right. still say 
in the real world, 10 watts is a, yeah, yeah. a meaningful change. But it, it just seems to me that the difference between, that's a smaller difference, obviously, um, than it is going from uh, 12 to zero. Yes, yeah, it is a smaller. So the, so then if we look the last at... bit from 12 down, if you like, to a more aero position really begins to hurt. Absolutely, but if you look at the preferred torso angle of the participants when they came into the lab on their their usual bikes, that was around twelve degrees as well. Okay, yeah. So I suppose maybe some training effect. They're used to holding that position. Their muscles are working in their optimal range, so perhaps that's that's one reason we don't see such a big difference between. And then as soon as we go really low, that's pushing everyone into the a range where they can't perform as well yeah we don't we didn't it's not in the results because we didn't have enough data but we look at the participants who had the lowest preferred torso angle was around six degrees they had a higher efficiency and higher power output across all torso angles so while we can't read too much into it we observed that if you train and ride at a lower torso angle you're you can perform better in a range of positions so maybe you, you can easily adjust positions more and you won't see a change in performance. So an interesting observation, but obviously not enough data actually to draw any solid conclusions. Uh, you know, obviously there's two, two ways of looking at that. There's some natural selection that those people who are able to get into that lower position, you know, uh, you know, uh, or habitually use that lower position, find it easier can produce some more power or is it a trainability thing that this because they've deliberately used it before that then it's easier for them i suppose yeah both really it's difficult to really conclude because obviously they could just be better trained anyway and have higher efficiency yeah. or they've trained in that position more yeah okay so um so you mentioned obviously the significant dec decrements across the torso angles for power output um rpe yeah, um, is, is obviously a bit higher in the zero torso angle. Um, and then you've got other more metabolic measures, for example, uh, ventilation. Yes. Um, it doesn't seem, you know. It's, no, there's no difference in. It, very small differences, it looks, you know. Slightly higher at the 24 degree, which you'd expect for a higher power output, obviously higher VA2 to meet the demand, but not significant which obviously shows that there is a probably a greater strain at the lower torso angle because if similar vo2 for a very a significant difference in power output you'd obviously expect that to have a, a relationship between power output and vo2 but we don't really see that right here um heart rates are, are really indistinguishable between the, the 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 three um conditions the three torso angles but again um we as you've alluded to you know there are significant differences in power output so you might have maybe expected some difference in heart rate but it's probably because of the extra other strain that comes from the the lower torso angles um, and then obviously vo2 itself um you do start to see a similar uh separation as you would be for the power yeah. Yeah, so it's a higher uh, VO2 um, for uh, the lower um, torso uh, angle. Yeah. Which again is interesting because it's a lower power, isn't it? Yes, yeah. So, uh, of course, we, you know, you were particularly, I'll, I'll leave you to talk about the gross efficiency because that was one of the key things that you were interested in. Yes, yeah, so that was... Uh... I suppose the second part of the study. So we had the time trials we've just talked about. And then we wanted to know how does that time trial and the position affect our, the change in efficiency? So when we look at, um, if, if anyone's looking at the figures, it'd be figure 4A. And that's where we look at the, the difference. So when we look at pre-gross efficiency, as we'd be expected, I suppose it's highest you get the highest efficiency at the highest torso angle, 24 degrees. So that's 22.5%. Then when we reduce the torso angle, 
efficiency gradually decreases. This is pre-time trial. So it goes down to a mean of 22.1 and then 21.7. So we can see there's nearly a 1% difference between 24 degree and 12 degree torso angle. So that's quite a meaningful difference in efficiency. And I think the previous papers have reported that's would equate to you know, a reasonable chunk of time across a 40 kilometer time trial. Um, but the interesting part is obviously the, the change post time trial. And we see at all torso angles, we get a two to 2.5% decrease in efficiency. So that's from pre-time trial, and that's for all torso angles. So the performance of the time trial, as we'd expect from previous literature, we see a decrease. So you're less efficient post-time trial, which would be expected for a host of reasons. Um, the greatest decrease was from the, at the 24 degree. That's potentially due to higher power output and homeostatic disturbances and maybe the recovery process is there. Um, but yeah, effectively, the difference in efficiency is nullified when we look at post-efficiency. So when we're looking at setting up a time trial position, is it worth setting up, looking at the change in efficiency we're going to expect? I'd argue it's not, because as we see here, you can, you can start with a high efficiency, but it's going to be the same at the end of this time trial. Obviously, caveat being this is just a 20 minute performance so when you're looking at longer duration events there may be some might be more important there but yeah that's the efficiency findings but if uh, you know I, I think this is one of the things that we always have to get is this balance between um, what is optimal aerodynamically which would be the zero torso angle um, versus you know the decrement that you see in, in ability to produce power and of course, you mentioned that the, the, the Fentolin paper, um, you know, it suggests that that from zero to 24 degrees, there's a 14% reduction in frontal area, which is, you know, is an analogous measure for, for aerodynamic efficiency. So, um, you know, it is that balance point, isn't it, between uh, making yourself more slippery through the air versus the ability to actually push the pedals. Yes, no, absolutely. And that's, yeah, I suppose it's a limitation of our study. We can look at efficiency and you've got all these numbers, but what does it actually mean in real terms? We don't have any measures of aerodynamic drag or the diff we look at the difference in power outputs, but is zero degrees, are we more aero? We, we can't tell from this paper, which I suppose is a, a major limitation, but yeah, my, t my takeaway from this is it, it reinforces that there is a trade-off between aerodynamics and physiological functioning and perhaps depending on time trial length, we need to consider efficiency and the amount of energy it takes to obviously produce the power, but maybe become more important depending on the event. Because ultimately, probably from a metabolic point of view, there's going to be an optimal amount of oxygen consumption uh, for any set uh, distance stroke duration, uh, one would assume. Um, and of course, therefore, um, the more power you can get for that oxygen consumption, the better. Um, so it's trying to work out what what actually is the best i think for me uh, it is interesting that you know i think you know one takeaway message from your paper is that um if, if you like it's that convergence at the post uh, um efficiency measurement gross efficiency measurement that there's really indistinguishable yeah. uh, efficiencies across the three torso angles at that uh, 20 minute after your 20 minutes worth of intense exercise Albeit, as you say, there is a, a range of powers that those are produced. And um, I know you referenced in your paper, one of your supervisors' papers, uh, James Hopkins' 2016 yeah. paper that looked, okay, it was a bit longer. It was two hours uh, worth of exercise. But I think when I was sort of, you know, doing a bit of research before our chat here and just going back and looking at that paper, 
Um, the thing that surprised me about that was that the change in efficiency happened quite quickly yes. and then didn't seem to change at all across. So if I remember correctly, he James measured every half hour yes. um, within his two hour um, uh, trial. And within the first half hour, it was down. The efficiency was, uh, you know, obviously impacted because of the, uh, you know, riding at a reasonably high intensity. Um, I think off the top of my head again, that was about 60% of, uh, of maximum power uh, from a max power test. Um, and so therefore, you know, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, beforehand, you might have imagined that there was some sort of um, gradual decline in efficiency uh, over the duration of a piece of exercise, whereas it doesn't seem to be that. It seems to be happen quite quickly. Uh, and I haven't seen uh, papers that have measured in much more detail as in uh, across time, you know, to see exactly um, when it would happen. Of course, it's probably complicated by the fact that um, shorter durations, of course, you're going to break the rules um, for measuring efficiency because you're going to have an RER of, of over one. And quite often at the start of exercise, that's going to be the case anyway, isn't it? Yeah, um, you can't measure efficiency during obviously high intensity exercise. Yeah. Where you get that VO2 slow component, I suppose, when you're moving into the heavy intensity domain and in severe exercise, you can't measure efficiency. Yeah. It's funny you say that because there was another paper 2018 not sure the name of the authors, but they looked at um, uh, where uh, sort of half time trials and the most of the decline in efficiency happened in that first half of, of the time trials of varying lengths. So they did a half time trial, then a complete and looked at where was the decrease decline happening. And that was, as you mentioned from James's paper, it happens early on in exercise. And these authors suggest it's the, the anaerobic contribution at the start of exercise. That was sort of what they suggested. Um, so I suppose from this, this paper, I'd say you maybe don't be concerned about efficiency declining because it's going to happen anyway, regardless of your position. So you choose an aggressive position, efficiency is going to decline in the same way as it does at a, a higher torso angle. So it's probably that decline is happen regardless so it's maybe not as important to consider when optimizing a position i think for me as well i think um obviously as researchers we do have a methodological issue around you know measuring gross efficiency at higher intensities however if you think of it from a practical point of view um it's still important to the individual rider how much oxygen they require to be able to operate at the intensity they want to operate at. Yeah. Um, you know, regardless of any rules that we may have about measuring efficiency. Um, and that's ultimately going to potentially be performance limiting yeah. um, at some aspects. Because there's we know there's a, you know, depending on how long you're going, there's a there's a there is a time power relationship, regardless of how long you're going for. Um, and you know that's related to your own personal physiology and your training um, at that point in time. Um, so, and again, it's I haven't seen it, and I'd be interested to have your uh, view on it. Is you know, my perception is that there could be fairly inter-individual differences in the decline in efficiency that you might see, which therefore could ultimately impact on performance over time. And I don't know whether, you know, you've got a feeling for that having looked at this. I know it's only a relatively small sample um, of riders, um, but, you know, I think, you know, you can look at some of the error bars that you have across the, um, you know, your efficiency uh, with uh, your group means you know, there is there is a reasonable amount of variability and efficiency yeah. across across riders. Yeah. So um, if you look at the coefficient of variation, we're looking 50 to 60 percent. Mm -hmm. There's quite a large variation when we're looking at the actual decline in efficiency. Yeah. There is big difference across participants. Yeah. So but then I suppose that's 
same with all anything physiology biology there's always that biological variation when we're looking at things like that um but uh, it's whether maybe we heart more trained individuals in the cohort didn't have such a high um, great decline it's difficult to tease out but from the data here as it is and something i'd have to go and look at the actual individual data points um, as i said earlier it's probably not enough participants to tease out those minutia of the details <laughs> yeah and of course you know um as well as you know these inter-individual differences you know we have this question uh, i suppose um is this a trainable yeah you know you're saying about people who are who, who, who train more or whatever we do, do we actually know whether efficiency is a trainable element I suppose it is, yeah. There is, you do see, I think it's that, is it the Paula Radcliffe paper where they looked at her performances over her career and her VO2 max declined, but her performance improved because she had a greater running economy or efficiency. So I suppose it is trainable to a certain extent, but maybe that's over a greater period of a, a sporting career rather than in a short space of time. I think James probably did a paper on, I think he looks at, efficiency over a season but i can't recall the, the actual results of that but i think going to looking at training in the time trial position and looking at the physiological functioning i think yeah it's definitely trainable just from looking my own obviously performances and other cyclists and athletes i've worked with you get them to train in a certain position over a season they do adapt to that position and perform better so maybe it's a case you set up the most aero position you can and then train in that position and adapt to it i think there's a an argument for that rather than even though i suggest there's a trade-off and we should test both aero and physiological performance you can i suppose say let's just get super aero and then train ourselves up to produce the power and yeah I think it's a trade-off between both. And yeah. There's recent another recent paper Steve Faulkner published where he looked at. I want to. I haven't read the. Can't recall the details enough, but they looked at what's the CDA. So you combine physiological performance and aero performance, and the higher what's the CDA, the theoretically the faster you go. So yeah. that's probably a more. Yeah better way of optimizing a position rather than simply as we've done looking at efficiency you can't optimize from this data but it gives us insight into how the position affects performance so yeah um yeah so I, that's a really good mention about andy jones's paper on on sort of paula radcliffe um you know uh, about the changes in a uh, her running economy um over her career um it's funny because, you know, actually the numbers are really high. I suppose I always thought when I read the paper, Paula never looked like an economic <laughs> runner, partly because of her sort of head motion. Um, but clearly she was, you know, when you got her into the lab and, and did the measurements, she was very economical um, with her, her running. I think the other element that is, is important if we do making the comparison across sports here is that... Um, the range of economies versus the ranges of efficiency and cycling. So running economy versus cycling, mm -hmm. uh, sorry, uh, efficiency. The cycling is much narrower range across athletes simply because it's a closed, um, you know, biomechanical uh, motion. Yeah. Um, however, it does, you know, you know, as you sort of mentioned at the beginning, there was a reasonable range across uh, your, your riders and I suppose there's, um, you know, a school of thought that says that, um, you know, in, in your uh, base preparation and, and throughout the year, you know, like doing just miles, um, there is something there possibly around improving, uh, you know, your cycling uh, efficiency uh, by doing so. And, and possibly, again, we don't, um, 
I don't recall and I don't know if it's been done, you know, as a cross career, as you, you know, the, the equivalent for the Paula Radcliffe paper and cyclists. I've not seen anything which does uh, cyclists from over a number of years. And uh, of course, except unless I, I, the only one that comes to mind was one of the um, Ed Coyle papers, specifically looking at Lance Armstrong. But, you know, we always have to take, I suppose, those uh, data with a little pinch of salt. Um, but I'm not aware of any other uh, longitudinal uh, cycling studies looking at uh, efficiency. Then you would assume from a complete beginner who's getting the actual learning how to pedal efficiently and smoothly, you'll probably see a greater improvement just simply biomechanically from early on to then you're sort of moderately trained individuals than well trained and probably with quite a quick improvement just simply from yeah you know to ride a bike <laughs> and absolutely and i think we you know it's, it's important to remember that um you know when we're talking about cyclic deficiency it is a combination of met uh, metabolic and biomechanical um and you know there is uh, our motor coordination of the pedaling stroke and um, does make a difference um, in terms of the energy cost. Um, it was interesting. Um, I was recently listening to a podcast um, and the guest on the podcast was uh, Jim Martin from Utah. Uh, Jim's researched uh, cycling for a long time. Um, and it was interesting. He was talking about, um, you know, the, the motor control of the pedal action. And one of the key elements is actually not the uh, initiation of the pedal stroke it was actually turning off uh, the muscle contraction in time so that it wasn't a resistive force for the next pedal stroke. Um, so actually our, our muscles are very good at turning themselves on. They are slightly less good at turning themselves off. So yes. you have the signal there um, sooner rather than later. And one of the things that he did mention, which I thought was extremely interesting, which was a comparative biology sort of um, observation, is if you look at uh, through the animal kingdom, uh, animals that have uh, very high uh, muscle contraction and relaxation rates, so hummingbirds and, and the like, um, they have enormous sarcoplasmic reticulum. Uh, within their uh, muscles. Now, for our listeners, just to sort of clarify what this means, obviously for muscle contraction, you need to release calcium for muscle contraction to happen. For muscle contraction to stop, you have to get all the calcium back out again. And that the job, uh, that's the sarcoplasmic reticulum's job to release and, and reabsorb the calcium. So unless you have a really well-developed sarcoplasmic reticulum, that gets difficult. And of course, it is something we see uh, developing in uh, as a result of exercise. Um, I don't know anything specific that anybody's ever measured it related to cycling, um, but it certainly would be a, a, an adaptation that you would see. Yes. Um, if you look at the factors affecting performance at different torso angles and the changes in muscle, the force length relationship as you close hip angle um, and the way them, obviously you activate muscle on the pedal stroke you got you've measured I think in the, one of the another Fintelman paper that looks at crank torque and where it's initiated in the pedal stroke as you change to a more extreme position and we see changes in peak torque and it also occurs later in the pedal stroke and they suggest that's probably a factor involved in reduction in power output as we reduce hip angle and torso angle on a on a bike so that's one of the reasons so i suppose that's yeah looking at muscle function and reasons why we see these decrements in performance so I, and i think that also of course you know one of the areas that jim martin has done a lot of research on is crank length yes. um and it's probably more so in the triathlon uh, community that they have adopted shorter crank lengths um, and you might correct me here I'm not aware that across the time trialing community, there's a whole host of people that are on super short cranks. 
Um, you know, and of course, when I say short, you know, we're talking about something which is less than 160 millimeters. Um, and of course, the advantage that you have with those is um, that if you're in a zero degree torso angle, the short cranks allow you to have the hip angles um, that are more uh, in theory. And again, I'm not, I haven't seen anything personally that shows, you know, uh, force production uh, specifically within a time trial position and really short cranks. Again, it might be, I've just not read it yet. Um, but certainly there is a lot of interest in that area. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, some people do run short cranks, one five fives. I think majority is like one six five, one seventy. but I think that's just accessibility to different crank lengths and manufacturers producing power meters of these different personally I use 170s again I think that's just you have your crank length and you you adapt to it and it comes into account when you're changing your position just take that into account perhaps you if you chores the crank you turn over the pedal stroke faster maybe it opens up your hip angle um, but as you say it's not really I, I can't recall literature I've read on time trial position and crank length but if it has an effect on hip angle there's got to be obviously something there that then everyone's individual aren't they it's different leg lengths different torso lengths there's so many different factors when you're setting up a, a position on the bike that come into play and of course we do we do need to remember as well is that um and and uh I'm sure both of us are, are happy to uh, admit to listeners uh, that we're not aerodynamicists. Um, it, it can change a lot. Uh, you know, it, you know, we're kind of looking at a very simplified view of frontal area, which should be reduced by zero to uh, torso angle. The reality is when you get a, a bike and a person into a wind tunnel and actually do the measurements, um, it's not always 100% obvious the outcome that that would have been uh, without the data from a wind tunnel, that would have been the fastest position. Um, and, uh, you know, ultimately, as well as we mentioned at the beginning, it's that balance between what's aerodynamically efficient and what's physiologically, um, uh, you know, that you can produce enough power. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because it's not, as you're saying, it's not just frontal area. Obviously, I don't, not aerodynamics, but it's how the air flows over the body. So, going from what we looked at here a 12 degree or torso angle maybe aerodynamically fastest for someone just because how just because of how they sit on the bike the fabric on their skin suit the frame you know all these things interact don't they and yeah. little changes change how aerodynamic they are so as i say it's that what's the cda you've got to dial in both of those you optimize that then you should be in your optimal position and i suppose that's the limitation i'll be the first to point out all the limitations of this study but that is we're limited here when we're looking at the, the data but it still gives us a good insight into that trade-off between physical performance and aerodynamics so uh, just in a sort of a summary and you can correct me if i've got it wrong here but you know uh, i think the outcome from your study really shows it's another demonstration of the impact of torso angle on performance in this case over over 20 minutes and clearly the the, the smaller the torso angle and, and it was zero degrees here or as close to zero as possible um, was significantly lower uh, power outputs and and you know probably alongside that some of the expected uh, other physiological measurements that would you know uh, relate to that um however when it comes to gross efficiency while there was a difference pre-trial um, there was no difference post-trial so in reality you would have to say that it's at this point in time it's questionable um, the impact of torso angle on gross efficiency or the changes in gross efficiency as a result of uh, a time trial performance and in fact i think you have a quote in your study you've actually uh, quantified it that it, it said that your gross efficiency could only account for 11 percent of the variation in time trial power output 
means that there's an awful lot of other stuff in there that's ahead of it in terms of um, a relationship with uh, which would be performance. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. However, you know, as I say, it's we we're, the performance we can only it's, we don't know what the time performance would be here. We can only have performance in terms of power output. Yes. Yes, and I suppose you summed that up pretty well. What the studies showing, I suppose, just simply that I probably mentioned it previously. No, we don't need to worry so much about um, efficiency probably during shorter time trial efforts. We can see last five minutes, everyone was able to increase their power output. So perhaps efficiency in itself is not so important when we're looking at short duration time trials. Um, you probably, the aerodynamic gains of being lower torso angle far outweighs the physiological losses. Then when we're looking perhaps more towards longer duration events, your Ironmans, your 100 mile time trials, where you're on the bike for four hours, perhaps then that's where that trade-off, the lines become a bit blurred and perhaps you do want to look at more efficient position, more comfortable position, that maybe where you do lose some of that aerodynamic gain, but you make up for that in expending less energy over the duration of the course. So when you do get off the bikes, then run, perhaps there's, you've got, you've not expended as much energy and then obviously take into account fueling strategies as well across, across a longer duration event. Obviously not, can't obviously tell that from the, the study here, but it's, yeah, it gives us that sort of information we can, should consider. That's great. Um, I'm sure there'll be a queue of people, Chris, that would want to do that study, which would be four hours plus in the lab, in a zero um, torso angle position. <laughs> Another interesting study would be to do a training study in positions. Obviously, quite a few confounding variables. Simply training, you could see an improvement. Is that due to training or training in the position? It would be interesting to obviously do, but not something that's possible at the moment. <laughs> As always, and, and many people, uh, maybe in the general public, don't necessarily always pick this up. Research generally creates more questions than it gives us answers. Um, yeah. And I think that is the case here for your paper. I think it does really add to, you know, the sort of body of literature that's there. But it certainly poses us with some new questions, which I'm hopeful that maybe at some point, whether it's yourself and your own PhD, or other uh, budding uh, sports scientists uh, take it on, um, we maybe get some more answers uh, to the questions. Uh, Absolutely. There's still a lot to be said for simple trial and error out on the road, individuals going out, changing positions, seeing what works for you. I think that's, you can do all the science in the world, but it's still you've got to apply it to the real world. And sometimes simply working with a coach and changing things is, sometimes the best way to go you can learn a lot on your own tweaking things on your bike and then seeing which is the fastest on the day <laughs> mm -hmm. that's true chris uh, thank you very much for your time no, thank you. um it's been really interesting and i'm sure our listeners will have found uh, your um, study and your results of your study really interesting i will of course um put a link to uh the paper yes. on the uh on the podcast website um, otherwise, um, if uh, some of our listeners wanted to get in touch with you, do you have a, a Twitter handle or? I do. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. I'm not sure of my hand, handles, but. Um, okay. Um, that's... Uh, Chris, Fennell, Chris underscore Fennel5 is Twitter. Okay. And and I'll, uh, I'll make sure and put, uh, put that on your. Uh on on the website as well um and uh i know your email address and stuff will be on the paper as well anyway so if people yeah. wanted to email. it's open access free to download which is nice so yeah everyone can access it yeah so that's the, the journal of science and cycling if you google that you can easily find uh i think it's actually on the current uh, issue that's uh as up there at the moment so you'll be able to to find that so once again chris uh, thanks for your time and uh Good luck uh, with uh, your current uh, work and, and, and the future PhD. Thank you very much. 
If you're new to uh, the Cycling Science Podcast, you will be able to see on our website um, uh, the previous episodes that we've covered and some other information. Um, so uh, please have a check through um, our previous episodes uh, with some great interviews uh, uh, included there. Remember, if you want to um, suggest any topics uh, for us to cover in the uh, Cycling Science uh, podcast, then please let us know. Um, and you can do that by going to our website, which is cycling-science.com. And uh, you can leave us a message on there um, in the contact uh, section. Finally, if you're looking for any coaching or uh, sports science consultancy from me directly, then please contact me through the contacts uh, page on our website. Again, that's www.cycling-science.com. So until next time, folks, that's all. Thank you.